0: Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. (music)
1: Welcome, Saurabh Amari, to Wisdom of Crowds for the second time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And last time was fun. And, this time um, will be funner. Funner, exactly. <laughs> for those of you who missed Saurabh's first appearance on Wisdom of Crowds, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. That was a very different episode than I think this one will be, but there's only one way to find out. Saurabh, you have a new book out, so congrats on that. Here it is. Um, Thank So you. people can see it. It's called Tyranny, Inc., how Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Okay, so I finished reading this book earlier today, and I have to say I was like a little bit surprised. I hadn't done a lot of reading about what appears to be something of a transformation. I don't want to overstate it, but this is not the Sorab that I think some people think of more, the culture warrior, mm-hmm. anti-woke, Um, Some people associate you, for better or worse, with the right or even the far right or Catholic integralism. Mm -hmm. So I think that this book will be surprising to those people who have a certain caricature Mm -hmm. of you. And I was thinking that, you know, this book in a way was kind of woke. And I I don't mean woke (laughs) in the kind of like current sense that people use it, but you're very much awake to injustice and to what marginalized people in america are experiencing in this case they happen to be economically marginalized we're not talking here about racial or or ethnic minorities and so forth but um and i also thought maybe bernie's uh economic policy advisor could have written something that hits a lot of the same notes i don't know if that's exactly what you were going for but that's, I came out of it, wow, this is what's going on here. So maybe just start us off like,
2: what is going on with Sohrab? Sure, is he changing? Sure. Um, well, I mean, the Washington Post uh, ran a sort of, sort of positive review and sa- it, it said, uh, this is anomalously sensible. Which um, <laughs> <laughs> is a funny thing to say. But um, so I actually don't see uh, Tyranny Inc. as being um, a rupture with my kind of larger intellectual project represented by uh, the previous book when the last time I was here, which was The Unbroken Thread. And um, um, yeah, by the way, thanks for having me again. I know, I know that you don't do that often. Um, but I see the two books as being in continuity. Um, the, that previous book was about how as individuals, we, we need limits and that paradoxically limits set us free. Um, it's a very ancient insight. Uh, and I use a lot of sort of ancient uh, thinkers and theologians and so forth to mount it in the realm of the individual's own kind of interior life. Um, so this book is about our political economy today, and its basic insight is the same is a similar one that um, you know autonomy in the eco- economic realm, ma- the idea that we should maximize market autonomy, has paradoxically yielded an economy in which um, workers and consumers are enveloped by coercion. And precisely because we deem um, the the private economy to be private, to to draw such a sharp distinction between public and private, we end up removing what happens to us in the economy as, as workers, as consumers, from the realm of political contestation, from democratic give and take, from accountability, um from legal justiciability and so on so that um you know we we can't challenge the kind of tyranny we face and that complex of practices and coercion forms of coercion which i uh, you know it's merely a reportorial book so readers who read it it, it's it's not so abstract you know it begins with just a series of stories of mainly workers facing coercion in the workplace in the courtroom etc um put all of that together, we end up with what I call a system of private tyranny. Okay.
1: So another thing that I noticed is that you, you seem to be pulling your punches on the cultural stuff. Like you're very focused throughout the book until the last chapter, when you start to introduce how economics relates to culture, but is is the attempt here to really go beyond a right a right leaning or right wing audience and to make case that everyone can or at least as many people as possible can get behind and that's why you try to avoid getting into the divisive cultural um, yeah. or religious issues
2: there are several motive it, it is very clear you're not wrong there are several motivations behind that um one is my own growing frustration with the rights anti-woke turn that might surprise some people. Um, I like many others, maybe you guys on this podcast too, judging by what I know of your, you know, kind of public personas and your writings, I find much that is called woke to be kind of veering between obnoxious to unbearable, you know, that said um, I found that the right is now just uh, using anti-woke as a, as a means by which not to address other issues that we face in in our national life, uh, you know not everything has to do with woke, so I'm, I'm getting sort of sick of it, and I think yeah. voters are too, but I mean but in the sen- in the way that they 're responding to certain like explicitly anti woke campaigns that are not resonating so just to give an example, you know Silicon Valley Bank collapsed a few months ago and It really touched on an issue that is very complicated. It has to do with local and regional banking. And why does the United States have these kinds of banks? Well, it's a legacy of the Jacksonian era. It's very complicated. These banks, the local ones, are too small to do damage. The big ones are super regulated now since the financial crisis. But there's this middle band of banks that are very dangerous precisely because they fit into neither of those boxes. So that's a complex and serious issue. You know, you might have different takes on it. What was the right's reaction? It was, um, yeah, the bank collapsed because it went woke. And like <laughs> yeah, it, it, right. it, the, 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 the board was dominated by white guys. It's like, what are you talking about? So that's one. The second is a deeper frustration with the right, which is I agree with the right. In fact, I've been at the forefront with the rights kind of lamenting the cultural ramifications of the ca- kind of market society I, we've built. Um, you know, the right complains rightly about collapsing marriage rates, collapsing um, family formation, collapsing fertility, collapsing church attendance, opioid addiction, fentanyl, suicide, despair, etc. But it's almost determined to blinker itself to the material roots of this. Not every cultural problem can be reduced to economics, but there is this sort of nexus between culture and economics. And the right loves to focus on the effects without looking at the causes. Now, paradoxically, yeah. the left tends to identify some of the co- the right causes correctly by focusing on the economy, but then it turns around and ratifies the effects. It says, "No, it's good that people are, you know, ever more individualistic and sort of divorced from community and so forth." But my, you know, as a man of the right, I want to sort of hold my own, skewer my own side a little bit because of this tendency to uh, pretend like, you know, material reality, uh, economics, especially in political economy has nothing to do with the, with the kind of broken shape of our culture. So those are two reasons. Yeah.
1: That makes sense. And you said that, um, your, your own side, so you still firmly identify, I mean, labels don't matter a whole lot, but I just be curious in terms of like how you see yourself.
0: And, you know, and and let me just jump in. Sort of, I Tamir, mean, uh, when, just on that, not, uh, just specifically on that question, you say the right, you, do you mean conservatism or do you mean the right? And I know that that's, you know, maybe confounding it a little bit, but, but just uh, maybe that can help because uh, I do have some follow up questions on that.
2: Yeah, I guess I mean, I mean, uh, uh, the complex of conservatives and libertarian ish types I, I put them now when I say that I apply that to both because both have this tendency even libertarians at like Reason magazine the sort of most doctrinaire libertarians will say oh it's terrible that this is some of them will say it's terrible that there is addiction and so on and so forth but they won't and of course they will defend the market system completely and you get the same at like you know National Review and so on and you know many GOP lawmakers, um, so yeah, I just mean the right broadly in its full spectrum there, and just to answer um, Shadi's like labels question, um, I, I I'm a conservative or a man of the right in in that I have I, I have a sense of what the good society should be, and we sort of discussed that on the last time I was in this show. I I believe that human beings are rational political animals; they thrive in community, um, they need memory. They need connections with others, et cetera. All those things that sort of are the conservative ideal. But I think that in order to try to uphold, preserve that, you know, we actually need a, a, a more interventionist government, um, more kind of, of social democratic protections of the like that really um, um, move this country forward in terms of political economy during the New Deal order. And so I'm, as you know, uh, if you've read the book, it's um Toward the end, I I openly celebrate the New Deal order, and that's very unusual for someone on the right to do. And so, uh, it, it, people on the right have noticed this. So Jonah Goldberg uh, saw it coming and sort of said, "Ah, oh, you know, Saurabh, he's he's just a pro-life New Dealer." And I <laughs> so, I embraced the labor. I was like, "Yeah, that's that's pretty good." Another way to say uh, to, to describe a pro-life New Dealer is a is a Catholic or a Christian Democrat.
0: Yeah, I, so. Mm. I love the book. Um, I was actually talking to Shadi uh, before you came on, uh, before you just joined us. I mean, it reminded me one of the, the first sort of uh, things that I'd written on the Internet that sort of engaged with political debates here in D.C. Um, you have a you have a you bring up Carl Polanyi at one point, who's, I think, just one of the most interesting uh, philosophers, uh, writers, and really non-Marxist anti-capitalists. I think that's maybe a too harsh a way to put it, but just like a no, no. Uh, he
2: would he would totally take that label. Yeah, not, not and, non non-Marxist socialist. Let me another yeah. one.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and and um uh, and I remember that like my first sort of argument was basically saying that there's that capitalism is a revolutionary force, and that conservatives, uh, you know, American conservatives in particular are a particularly odd bunch because they are committed or at least were committed to free market principles, which is a revolutionary set of principles. So you're, you're kind of, uh, conserving a revolutionary force, which actually tears apart the society, the fabric of society. So I was really delighted to read this book because I think it crystallizes that tension at its mm-hmm. core. Mm-hmm. But let me, let me then just push you on that part because, so you're a conservative, you know, a new dealer, uh, a pro-life new dealer. Um, why, uh, or maybe not why, but was the that sort of um post World War two period, um mm-hmm. why is that one the one to conserve? Why is that the ideal for conservatism to conserve? Was that the high point of America? Um you know, okay. just yeah. Uh, yeah broad question, but just No, you know, no, I get it. Walking I get through it. that question.
2: Yeah. OK, so in order to do that, I can also bring in your, your larger points about um, capitalism as a re- revolutionary force. Um, so, you know, we, we the, the American, cons- the conventional conservative movement in the United States, especially since the Reagan era, has had this story about democracy and capitalism in this country rising harmoniously together. Um, and in fact, that's not the case that um uh, the, the sort of revolution that um, mark, the market society imposed on Europe, which Karl Polanyi describes, also unfolded in the United States. And it came very, it, it came coercively, right? The Hamiltonian state did all sorts of things, you know, import substitution, raising taxes in order to build a kind of developmental estate and, and create a national market. And um, it barred states from... Uh, constitutionally barred states from modifying contracts to rescue debtors. Um, it enshrined a kind of very harsh version of the common law that got rid of the English models, more communitarian elements, there were all sorts of communal rights built into ancient common law, which the version that was then implemented uh, in the United States had less respect for and was much more of a kind of entrepreneurial body of law. And all of this was experienced as extremely stressful for the the, the yeoman body of the of the american uh, people the majority the yeoman majority which was used to a kind of subsistence model relatively so growth a patriarch who could sustain his family and um, you know engage in minimal market transactions but largely you know subsistence on his own fruit and i'm not saying i'm not celebrating that economy i mean there's all sorts of good things that came from the hamiltonian state but just to say that this really stressed people out. It proletarianized their daughters, you know, formerly cloistered, now they have to go on to, to work in factories and and a grinding. Everyone is suddenly on the clock. And the market, as Polanyi says, and as Charles Sellers, the kind of the American Polanyi describes in the in the early republic, it just it disciplines people's, and people in various ways, right? Credit reports now come around. And if you have too many children, you get dinged for that. Uh, you know, if you, if you, uh, everyone's on the clock now, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and this, this uh called forth a democratic, a ferocious democratic backlash in the in the early republic, uh, embodied in the figure of Andrew Jackson and and I would say Van Buren as the, the two founders of the Democratic Party, and in messy ways that the Jacksonians sought to use democracy to tame the market system, to reassert the primacy of of the political, the rights of the laborer, and the uh, working man and the yeoman, which was the sort of coalition of the Jacksonians, they struggle to do that. They're they're populists, economic populists, but they don't quite manage. And so you ha- you go through this period in the nineteenth century where um, ultimately a more Lincolnian Whig model takes over, et cetera, et cetera, and you enter the the early twentieth century with this society that is, you know. Riven by horrific inequalities, um, you know, and, and, and in ways that begin to threaten the market system itself because workers uh, are so kept down that they can't afford the goods they can produce. So the, the depression is beginning to loom. This is a long, digressive historical answer, but what just to say that um, the f- democratic revolt against the market, against market absolutism, which began with Jason Jackson, found its fullest flowering in the New Deal and the kind of FDR program. And what followed it were three decades of, as we know, you had both mass prosperity and growth. You had a heavily regulated economy that was also at the cutting edge of the world. This was the nuclear age and the space age. The movie Oppenheimer gives you a kind of picture of that. You had close coordination between govern- government, labor, and capital and it was dynamic, so on and so forth, and, and and a lot of the hallmarks of working class life that people still associate with working class life, even though they're being they've all been stripped away, like you know health insurance and uh, vacations and retirement plans and so on and so forth emerged during that era. So now I don't necessarily want to reproduce that era because of its culture, and I'm, I sort of try to forestall that or preempt that objection in the book by noting that you know it's not, I'm not pining for the 50s. Not least, I'm I'm certainly not pining for racial relations, uh, you know, in the kind of era of still de jure apartheid in the United States. Um, But just that logic of that politics must tame the market for, I'm for the market, but I want a greater balance between politics and economics um, and not economics run roughshod over, over more important things. That logic was best achieved during the New Deal. And that's what I... Cherish about it and would seek to reproduce not the exact same macroeconomic conditions, cultural conditions, and so on.
0: Mm. Um, I mean, the, I guess the the the, the follow on question, um, because you know, the first part of the book as you as you said is sort of uh, you know more is reported, uh, lots mm-hmm. of anecdotes about uh, about people, and I think you know very compelling uh, stories about uh, the post New Deal period, um, mm-hmm. about how, how the economy developed, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the second part is, is sort of what to do about it and gets into a little bit more of the theory. You know, on the, the, the question, the first part that jumped out at me um, is you deal with it, but, but you, you, and it, it seemed to me sometimes you just brush it away a little bit, and that is um, the forces of technology and, and modernization that are, are changing and shaping the economy over and mm-hmm. over again. Now technology you know technological progress is sort of a handmaiden of capitalism of capitalist development of the economy mm-hmm. um, and you focus a lot on on you know uh, the financial sector uh, sort of the predatory aspects of it, private equity, the restructuring how this is forced. You have a very compelling chapter on you know the fate of sears Roebuck, uh, mm-hmm. the Sears company, and then mm-hmm. also dear to my heart uh, newspapers mm-hmm. um, but in both of those cases, you know, I, 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 they're compelling stories and 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 well researched and 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 well told. But mm-hmm. you know, on on, on Sears, uh, they also did fail, and large, you know, uh, retail stores, big brick, you know, stores are, are basically did get destroyed by the internet. Similarly, by newspapers, and sure, you know, the the finance is pushing these things. So you know, that's just a long way of saying. Um, to say just that, you you said yeah. uh, How do you deal with not, the problems? How do you deal with this this thing that is inherent in in economic development in markets? Um, yeah. And I think you're careful enough to say, yeah, you're not going back to the 1950s. There is no going back to it. But mm-hmm. how could it have been different? Let me put it to you that way. Uh, had yeah. had had we been able to take the Saurabh Amari approach to you know a more regulated economy? Had neoliberalism not interjected and right and triumphed in the 80s?
2: Well, one is as is, is a more philosophical answer, and then I think I'll sort of try to instantiate it in the two examples from the book that you brought up, the Sears story and then the the newspapers. Um, the big philosophical answer is, um, it, you know, technology is out there. Um, it, it is this kind of great revolutionary force, and it's uh, quite irresistible. But ultimately, how we deploy technology in our society is still up for political contestation so that um, – Either. we I, I don't think we should fetishize technology as this thing that has a brain of its own. Ultimately, it tools are tools. And so, you know, societies can democratically or administratively decide that we're not going to develop certain things as AI, for example, emerges. Um, you know uh, a lot of actors right now are up in arms and a lot of the actors that who are up in arms are background actors and people don't people think of acting and a lot of there's a sort of sneering at "Whoa, you're in hollywood and you're what, what are you complaining about well background acting is really grinding miserable work these are the actors who are rising up about how ai is deployed in um in in the movie industry and you know they that's something that is they're trying to politically contest that, and I think it's perfectly legitimate. And we can we don't we don't have to say just because the technology is there we're going to you know never have background actors again because we can scan every background actor once and then from then on we can create you know these um, digital simulacra of the of of the person. First of all, I don't want to a separate point, but I don't want to see a movie that's like that. I want to see great you know I, I want to see those war movies where you have like thousands of real people like on the battlefield and not digital creations movies are already plasticky enough but that's that's an aesthetic point the point is we can contest these things the 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 bigger point is um or or rather to not to explain how things could have worked out differently in the case of sears and um and local newspapers so the case of sears um i tell the story of sears's decline and a lot of people think well sears was good and then online shopping came around and then Sears died. But in fact, it wasn't the it wasn't internet shopping. It wasn't primarily internet shopping that that damaged Sears. It, the, the danger began in the 1990s with other box stores, which were not salesman led like Sears was and they didn't have the paper catalog. These were leaner, but it's always more convenient br- brick and mortar stores like uh, Walmart and Circuit City and so on. Um, And at that point, Sears was too focused on what was called the stocks and socks strategy, which meant not only could you buy like sturdy all American socks at Sears, but they also had Coldwell Banker doing real estate and they had an insurance company. They had the Discover Card, which, by the way, is a Sears invention. Hmm. They had even an Internet service called Prodigy. Um, Remember that. And so they they were they were, um, you know, going they were going in too many different directions and neglecting the core retail business. And then, you know. Since then lots lots of brick and mortar operations still persist because some people will always prefer to go to a store to try on clothes. They don't want to like just guess what their pant size is gonna be like on jCrew.com or whatever. So those those stores still persist. No, so in the case of um Sears, uh, you had a guy who took it over, his name is Eddie Lampert, um former former Yale roommate of um, Steve Mnuchin, the trump treasury secretary and a hedge funder who took it over and did a kind of typical asset stripping model of management he would uh he he would basically not invest in the business he it was managing for cash flow as it's called so it's just extracting as much cash as possible goosing the stock price um and fixtures became broken the pot the parking lots were all potholed uh Uh, No one could get a cash register that worked so that even when salesmen successfully made a sale, they couldn't check out the customer because the register wasn't working. This is systematic at every store. Um, And so what he was doing is uh, something that's unfortunately become the norm in American capitalism. Most people think, what does a corporation do? do? Well, it has a product it wants to sell. So it goes to a bank and it borrows money so it can produce market and sell sell the product and then it it returns some of the money to the bank. Uh, Yeah, they have to be rewarded for the risk that they took. And then it will, you know, um, invest the rest in the business. And if the people believe that for a long time, certainly that's what American corporations did, but. And you would call such a company a sustainer, right? It pays off it. It pays its shareholders, but it also retains enough capital to reinvest in the capital stock. But what Eddie Lampert did is what's called erosion, which is you just you take everything out of the business. You don't reinvest anything back. And so then the thing withers and dies just like a plant without water. Um, and now, you know, a, a majority of American corporations today um, are eroders. They're, they're not, they return sometimes 100% of profits back to shareholders. What, what happens to the community? What happens to the workers? What happens to the facilities? They all kind of become decrepit. Um, so that's not a technology story or not entirely a technology story. In fact, Sears, the one area where Sears kind of was ahead of time, even under Eddie Lampert, is they tried to start a um, website where you would uh, order online and then go pick up at the store. They, they, they pioneered that, but then they never really invested enough money to make it really good and workable, so it it also fell by the wayside. So, just to say that you know, the rise of the the rise of like Amazon need not have spelled the demise of brick and mortar retail, because in certain cases, it certainly didn't. Okay. It did for Sears because because of the way it was managed. Likewise, to just briefly go to the newspapers, what would, what would we have done differently? Newspapers were struck two blows by t- a pair of corporate tyrants. One was big tech, right? Yes, it's true that uh, the internet came along and people were like, well, this is easier. I'm not going to pay for a newspaper anymore. I'll just go online. And that certainly did some damage. Uh, but then newspapers tried to get into the advertising business and the sort of online advertising business. What they found is that they were dealing with uh, these large uh, you know, Web 2.0 platforms like Google, Facebook, et cetera, where they were on both sides of the transaction, of the ad transaction. What that means is you, you as the newspaper are an advertiser yourself and Facebook is as well. It itself is an advertiser. But Facebook is also a content provider. It tries, these platforms, Google News, et cetera, try to keep as much of the content and the eyeballs in their own turf. And so they will, in many cases, kind of extract a story, but you as the user don't end up clicking on the original news gatherer. So they are deprived of the eyeballs, the ad revenue, et cetera, et cetera. That's one damage to to local newspapers. And then you have the same private equity hedge fund model where they they bought up a lot of local newspapers in this case, they actually don't drive them to the ground. They just turn them into ghost papers, um, where they, you know, seventy percent of the staff is cut. Uh, the the real much of the real estate is sold off or turned into like luxury apartments and so on and so forth. And then you have a go. You have these series of ghost papers that only publish national stories. Uh, they they don't actually cover the local community, because that you can syndicate the same national content wherever you are, whether it's like a Maricopa County, Arizona, or somewhere in rural Maine, you just push the same national story, which by the way, has an effect of aggravating polarization because all people see is like Trump, v. Democrats instead of, Oh, like what's happening with my garbage collection. What's happening with the local school district and so on. But in neither of those cases was any of this inevitable because again, there are newspapers that were able to, withstand the pressure because they were large enough to fight back against Google, like Wall Street Journal, where I used to work, um, resisted a lot of this, but many in the New York Times is quite well online. And a few a few uh, regional newspapers like the Minneapolis Star Tribune and the Boston Globe have found ways to make the online model work. But they just need owners who aren't just out to, again, make an immediate profit.
1: Okay, yeah, so I want I, I want to push you so, Rob, because I, I do have concerns. I will say mm-hmm. that I like the book a lot. and as I said on Twitter, I think this is a I would say along with Richard Reeves's of Boys and Men, mm-hmm. one of the most important nonfiction books I've read in the past year, I think this has the potential to really reshape the public conversation in a mm-hmm. positive way. Mm-hmm. and hopefully you can change it right. Hopefully you can help change a Republican Party to actually take um, addressing economic inequality more seriously, not just in rhetoric, but in actual policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an uphill battle, but hey, you got to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, um, I'm not as economically left as I once was. I did um, support Bernie in 2020, mm-hmm. and I have quite a fun quite a fondness for Bernie's particular mix of economic leftism and not being super woke. I think mm-hmm. he's one of the last who's really been able to square that circle in a way that still felt authentic, but even he felt pressure to become wokeified, and I think that actually hurt him as he went a little bit more in that direction. Um, of course, yeah. And when I was reading the book, I felt angry I felt outraged. How can we as Americans be so cruel to our own people? There is a cruelty there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll just mention one example. I couldn't even believe this, but well, first of all, I wasn't super aware that local governments sometimes privatize basic services and basically outsource them to companies. So firefighting, normally you'd think that your firefighters, you wouldn't have to pay for them. That's not yep. the case everywhere in America, which is remarkable. Um, you, you mentioned a story of a baby who's born in an outsourced ambulance, and then the company that owns the ambulance sends a collection letter to the baby <laughs> saying that, quote-unquote, This matter may be reported to a national credit reporting agency, which is just just crazy stories. And I think it's really important to, like, tell those stories because people should be outraged about this bullshit. Um, Okay, but with that said, I, I do wonder if there's a tension in your argument, because basically one thing you're advocating for is that the state play a more interventionist role and to limit the tyranny or this kind of un, um, un, unregulated power of private companies. But then you're empowering a state which is very much not culturally aligned with you, so, Rob, Um We're talking about a state that is increasingly woke, also kind of technocratic, it's very secular, it's culturally progressive, it's not promoting the virtues that you've called for in a lot of your previous work, a more kind of religiously infused public policy where the common good is really prioritized. You're empowering a state that doesn't believe in the things that you believe in fundamentally when it comes to culture and religion. Are you comfortable with the implications of that, of empowering this potentially, quote unquote, problem? I mean, I don't love the word problematic, but there we go. This problematic
2: state. So at at the heart of the book is a call for empowering working class people. And what I argue is that doing that today requires um, a more robust measure of uh, State intervention specifically in the labor market, uh, which is what we did with the Wagner Act in 1935, which, a- after having suppressed labor unionism for for you know decades, the U.S. state actually comes in favor of uh, of empowering labor unions and collective bargaining, and um, what that did was, of course, it created a, a higher wage economy, and all, the all union density goes up. Uh, workers are more secure, there's greater workplace autonomy. And it cre- a high-wage economy is very important because when you have a high-wage eco- economy, you don't have a high-welfare society. Right now what we have is a low-wage but high-welfare society. When I say high-welfare, it doesn't mean that the benefits are like really, really nice. In fact, they're quite sort of uh, miserly. But it just means that for people in the bottom half, or however you want to count it, it they have to rely on ever more... Uh, public welfare, like a large share of their ability to make ends meet, is using public welfare rather than their own wages. What that does is actually that that empowers uh, administrators and bureaucrats over over the lives of work of the working poor, right? So they not only are they at the mercy of the boss at the workplace, but then there's this kind of administrative apparatus that has all sorts of disciplinary say over them. Now you can add the ideology of the woke and so forth, et cetera, as one more way that they can exert that kind of pressure. So the goal isn't just like big government for big government's sake. It's to empower working class people. And actually what that will do is, um, is, 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 I think, re- reduce the power of the kind of – Hen pecking administrator with an ideological axe to grind because people have it's their own wages and they have this kind of greater amount of security and and power in society and in the market. Um, Another thing I will say is I mean, about your point that yes, we have like um, we have lots of managerial type people who are either um, in universities, in um, all over who have like these woke ideologies. I mean, I think that it is possible that some of that will actually, the temperature of that will cool down if we had a better economy. Because if you have an economy in which you're either a low-wage worker and you're going to plunge through to the abyss if you if you don't manage to like lift yourself out of it, or we have a whole bunch of ideologized credential jobs, then in order for me to get one of those jobs, I'm going to fight however I can. And that means I'm going to assert my, I am this, I am that, gender, this, that, But if if you have an economy in which, you know, even if you have a high school degree, you can earn high wages, you can be secure, et cetera, and so on and so forth, then um, the incentives go away for this kind of um, uh, ideological contestation of every little bit of society and life and workplace. So you're making a really interesting and
1: important first principles argument. And as listeners and viewers of Wisdom of Crowds will know, we always like to bring it back to that. It seems to me that you're saying that I don't want to say you're you're being a materialist here but you're definitely privileging economic factors more. I'm I'm skeptical I'm skeptical that people are primarily motivated by materialist concerns. Um in that sense I do I do see the primacy of culture and religion and identity as what ultimately moves us and animates us as human beings so i have a little bit of you know skepticism about the kind of economic root of wokeness i know you're not fully saying that but can you just maybe say a little bit as someone who has been involved for such a long time in fundamentally cultural and religious debates have you changed your view on what human beings are primarily motivated by are
2: you yep. a materialist in some sense now in a way that you weren't previously? So, uh, no. I mean, I, th- I, I am not uh, a kind of reductive materialist. In fact, it, in making the case that some of our cultural problems may be ameliorated through be- uh, kind of a better economy, I'm hearkening back to... Um, The classical and Christian tradition, specifically the Aristotelian tradition, which says that um, law is architectonic with respect to everything else we do. So how we structure our our laws, including our economic laws, shapes the kind of people that you create. So, for example, um, you know. In my view, I mean, the goal of, of society is to secure the common good of the whole and to, to shape a virtuous citizenry, right? And I have very specific ideas of what a virtuous citizenry might be. We may not all agree, but I think a lot of people have this broad sense you want people who are fair, who want people who are thoughtful. Aristotle says it's not enough to just exhort people to, to be like that. It's nice to exhort other people, hey, you should be fair, you should be nice, etc., but he says that people need to have a degree of material comfort to begin to be able to pursue lives of virtue right you need you need a, you need a little bit of rest you need a little bit of a space to be able to contemplate the good and so on if you have a society that keeps everyone ultra competitive always harried always sort of um uh grasping for money and not without any time for anything else um, then you're going to get a different kind of person. Now you throw in a society that has a history of discrimination, a, a history of um, uh, of racism, and so on. Then you add this combustible mix of someone who is both, uh, you know, legitimately grieved in some historical senses, and also under all sorts of market pressures, and he or she um, might become your kind of ter- you know terrible wokester that that. Uh, mm. that- you know might uh people like you or like myself would be like oh my goodness that's um so th- to go back to the first principles questions it's 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 not a reductive materialism because it recognizes that uh history culture etc have their own internal logic and domain but that there's some there's some nexus between social organization law political economy and so on and the nature of people's souls and beliefs and mm-hmm. so that that's all i mean i think um i i i, I try to I, I have to be very careful i mean I'm, i am a as you know i'm a pretty uh you know devout catholic and so I'm, I'm not here to say that like what people believe just can be solely reduced to their class position and so on and so forth i mean we all went through that phase or at least i did when i was Seventeen, eighteen years old. I think this oh, yeah, is you were a Marxist st- for a little while, right? Yeah, but when I mean, it wasn't remarkable. Everyone goes. Who through among that. us? Yeah, exactly. who among <laughs> us wasn't? I was. I was when I was in high school and my early college years. But um, so it, it is not that kind of crude materialism, but it, it's something some some more sophisticated understanding of the kind of dynamic forces of culture and of, sort of this material substrate that. Structures all we do in some ways. Somewhere in the intersection between the two, as as souls are crafted and society takes a certain kind of shape. Dimir, you're sort of a
1: materialist. I know you want to, you know, just maybe I'd I'd be curious how that sounds to you because I think you're sort of different than me in this regard. I don't want to mischaracterize. I I, I, I hope I'm not a
0: crude materialist, also. (laughs) But but like but 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 here's 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 a way to 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 ask to push that point a little bit Sorab. Mm -hmm. um again to what i was asking you about um you know the new deal part um Mm -hmm. there's a section in the book uh you recount um a speech abraham lincoln gives and it is it's it's a striking speech in the sense that it's really it's at the the nexus as the the industrialization really takes over in america Mm -hmm. and lincoln doesn't see it himself yet he's still talking about um, the idealized American before this is before the Civil War, if I'm not mistaken. He's still uh, well short, 1859, um, and and um, uh, he's extolling these virtues of basically non-wage work. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, it, and it it was sort of like a, I think an American 19th century I, century ideal that that wage labor, you know, uh, as our youthful Marxist selves might have called it, wage slavery. You know, these things <laughs> are these things are negatives. That mm-hmm. that being a, a wage worker is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, your earlier self, your Wall Street Journal self, the sort of revolutionary um, pro-capitalist, not necessarily Sora, but the mm-hmm. revolutionary pro-capitalist conservative would also say that, you know, uh, the real American dream is to liberate people from being uh, dependent on wages. It's it's that capitalism, American capitalism gives the opportunity for everyone through hard work. And of course, this is oversimplifying in so many ways, but still that it gives the opportunity for the creation of individual wealth, which then in an ideal world with some luck and a lot of hard work, you too can become an entrepreneur. That is the, the dream of everyone. So, so the, the you know, to so the, the discussion you and Shadi were having now, uh, you, you, it does feel like in, in um, picking the post-New Deal order, mm-hmm. you are, and you, you said to it yourself, it's empower working people, wage earners, empower wage mm-hmm. earners. It seems like, in a sense, you are saying that, that there's no way out of that, that basically, maybe call it that. It's like the class relations of the working class, of the wage class, is permanent, and so we just need to empower and permanently sort of entrench and empower, and you talk about it, right, this, this, mm-hmm. uh, the counterforce of the wage earner against capital Mm -hmm. Um, but, but is that, is that, is that, um, what you were talking about, you know, the managerial class and wokeness, that also stratifies that, doesn't it? Because you have, you're, you're, you're also going to create a permanent managerial class as a permanent wage class. Mm -hmm. Have you, like, is that, is that? necessarily the stable thing? I'm not arguing mm-hmm. from the the arch conservative pro capitalist thing, but I, I want you to react to that former self of yours that I, I could imagine you're working, you know, mm-hmm. uh writing an uh an editorial uh at the Wall Street Journal. I can write it for you right now, right? It's mm-hmm. like we need to transcend and empower people to get out of the wage mm-hmm. thing. Um so I don't know, react to that a little bit. Yeah and, and yeah. in uh, the context no, of what you were talking no, no. to Shadi as well. Yeah.
2: So just to first of all to, to ratify your point that that's that's the Lincolnian ideal on political economy. The speech is is his address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, and it's sort of the emblematic statement of a certain kind of Whig, what would become basically the Republican Whig in the American sense, Republican ideology of the modern Republican Party. He lays it out there, and it's notable what he's arguing against. Uh, he is arguing against slavery. The the target of that speech. Is, is is the South. Because around that time, you had uh, ever more militant ideologues for Southern slavery, emerging uh, men like James uh, Hammond and uh, George Fitzhugh. And Fitzhugh especially said, you know, the South's model of social organization is better than the North's, uh, because there was always going to be a, a, a slave class in society, the mudsill class. And, he, you know, he, he, he was like, and why don't we just enslave poor whites too? Right. You have an aristocratic white people and, yeah, we have some black slavery, but we could also emplace slave white people and we just take care of them. And they're not they're not like the way it is in the north where you your workers are always sort of as soon as they get old, they get thrown into the street, you know. And so Lincoln opposes his ideal of free labor against this idea of uh, of a permanent slave class. And of course, it works electoral wonders because Northern whites began to be, you know, they're not, they weren't racial egalitarians, but began, they got to, came came to be very, very scared of what plans some of these Southerners had for (laughs) for their future. Like, um, and it worked. And, and of course, Lincoln in that sense is an absolute visionary and to be celebrated, including in his political brilliance in that, in that speech. That said, um, in his faith that, you know, you're you're about you're supposed to just get out of wage labor, right? He, that 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 there's never that there's no one who's bound to be dependent on wages for their whole lifetimes. He was absolutely a romantic, and it was a, it was already by the time he articulated this in the mid 19th century, it was it was already a romantic vision. It's a romantic vision rooted in the 18th, the late 18th century. There was this brief period when the development of capitalism sort of resembled. The version that appears in the theories of laissez-faire types, you know, lots of lots of independent producers, they each own their own land or their own tools. They meet at an arm's length, they transact, they walk away. That was all that that pattern had already been scrambled by the time Lincoln delivered his speech. Industrialization arose, huge barriers to entry. It takes a lot of capital to start a factory. Most people don't have it. Most people can't own their own tools, and most people were condemned to be earning wages for their whole lives. And Lincoln, Lincoln couldn't see this, of course. It's you know, and hey, you know, he was, a, he was a one of the truly great men of history. One can forgive him that. But that ideology has set in, so that you're right. You know, the Republican Party today think is in a way echoing Lincoln when it says that uh, it's really the job creator that matters. Um, and, and ignores the job holder, which is actually the majority of American society are just dependent on wages. Um, so yes, I think it's utopian to think that there will not be a, a wage earning class because I'm also not a socialist and I don't want, I don't want the, there is class antagonism, but I don't want to resolve it by having one class totally abolish the other class because whenever that's been tried, it's resulted in sort of horrific societies um so maybe the best we can do is instead strike a class compromise which is the principle of of the new deal and to to strike a class compromise you need you know you need to have power from below but you also actually it's true that you also need better elites and here i uh you know people have been comparing my book and my friend patrick Denin's book uh regime change they often get reviewed together which by the way is obnoxious to both books right (laughs) because you want eat your own to get maximal attention um, but his idea is about forming elites to be better elites uh, morally, and I, I certainly agree with that. But I think, you know, you also need, you also need power from below, pressure from below to do that you know, workplace pressure, countervailing power, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, but, yeah, 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 I mean, so, so to, to, to just to answer that question, yes, I mean, I think there's going to be a group of people who will never own their, the tools of manufacture, but they can live lives of dignity and power. So let me well, just irrelevant. before you jump in, Shadi, I just wanted to yeah, build yeah, sure. on
0: one other point you made, and this is maybe will launch us into a, a different discussion. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned cruelty, Shadi, and and yeah. you know, I think it, it's it's a very powerful part in the book is you're documenting this this the the cruelty of capitalism. Um, at the same time, it's it's it struck me repeatedly um, that uh, you know the extent to which America is just a a world beating economy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you compare it to, you know, you, you talk glowingly about social democracy. You know, I think that's one way to to just encapsulate where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that the, the social democracy is the model that you're broadly outlining in yep. in distinction to, to neoliberalism. But <coughs> it's it's there's something about um, about America's lack of social democracy, quite frankly, which which makes it so difficult to compete with. You look at at europe's own stagnation you know they have a much more um uh if you want fair uh and equitable sort of social and economic arrangement that that orders them uh but but uh you know they're 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 constantly behind the united states and and you know some of these figures uh that that gap is growing i I didn't actually look it up before but there was an astounding um figure recently about uh just since uh I think, covid, the kind of rebound and the the, the, the mm-hmm. lack of that. So in a sense, there's something about America's cruelty on the one hand, but its ability to just rebound and just reorient itself, which seems to me to be rooted in that cruelty in a way that mm-hmm. it's that ability to churn through people that creates this kind of incredible dynamism. What do you say to that? And
1: I'll just put a finer point on it just to add another. Uh, So even if you think about how America is much better at integrating immigrants and also religious minorities Mm -hmm. in a way that Europe is not very good at doing, um, part of it has to do with we don't have to deal with so much what's sometimes called welfare chauvinism, that if you have a strong, generous welfare state, the locals and the natives or whatever you want to call them are going to be more suspicious of people coming in and taking up a bigger pie of the generous welfare state. You accept for your fellow citizens to get a lot of benefits from the state if you trust them. And to some extent, if they look like you, if you feel like they're foreign, then you have a problem. So I think there's a number of ways where you can look at the American model and say that the cruelty is the point Mm-hmm. Um, I think to to use <laughs> isn't that Adam Serwer's. It book, is Adam Serwer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But okay, so I'm torn because part of me wants us to be more like France or Spain, where people can actually enjoy their lives and not have to work all the time and have proper vacations and focus and and where they can work to live instead of live to work. All that stuff, cliche, but there is some truth to it. Obviously, if we look at how um, Europe, you know, uh, you know, some a lot of Europeans actually approach their lives. At the same time, I don't want America to be a stagnant, vaguely unimpressive economy like you see in countries like France and Spain. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. Because we got to beat back China. Like there is, there is a kind of world historical struggle potentially that is unfolding before our very eyes. And there's no one else who can kind of like hold the mantle of potentially defeating China or at least keeping China at a manageable level than the u s and part of that depends on having a vigorous economy that is world beating, as Demir said. so I, I maybe we just have to acknowledge that there are trade-offs here. like you, we can't have our cake and eat it, and I'd just be curious how you yourself think about the trade-offs.
2: Yeah. Um, so the way I think about it is that um, that we are underestimating how powerful and productive that the New Deal order was. The no, New Deal American order was more productive than the New uh, the neoliberal era. So the Economic Policy Institute. Um, you know, has has done studies showing that due, from 1948 to 1979, which is you could call that the New Deal order, you could call that the social democratic era, you could call that the 30 glorious years, it has all these monikers, uh, American productivity rose by 118%. What came and that was a period, by the way, when uh, worker compensation uh, rose by 108%. Um, by contrast, uh, from 1980 to 2021, which you could define as the neoliberal era, American productivity only grew by 65 percent and then compensation only ca- crawled up by 17 percent. And so to put that in kind of anecdotal or dramatic or narrative terms, you know, let's not let's not poo poo the, the the New Deal type order in terms of its manufacturing capacity. This is the, the era when uh, lots of lots of new appliances made their way into the homes of American workers, workers who were able to they afford those goods because they themselves were paid well. So it was a sort of virtuous cycle, you know, workers and the economy scored on both ends as suppliers, you know, as uh, as sources of labor and as consumers themselves. Um, this was the nuclear age. This was the era of you know enormous manufacturing capacity on the part of the United States. By contrast, the new liberal era has been characterized by a great deal of financialization of the economy and a lot of economic activity that's kind of vaporware. So, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the moving around of money by Wall Street, by private equity, hedge funds, etc., and, and venture capital can that can look like good GDP numbers, it can look like dynamic growth, but it's not the same as the kind of production of stuff, um, which is what we did before, and uh, we, we and we were able to do that in an, in a context of greater industrial democracy, more, higher wages, and greater co- coordination between government, labor, and management. Uh, so, you know, we're we're seeing now actually the limits of the neoliberal economy if we're worried about competition with China or other rising great powers. You know, first of all, the pandemic revealed that, you know, having this kind of model where we just do services and and, uh, you know, apps and, you know, whatever, like uh, delivery for food and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it that. Those capillary supply chains that are supposed to deliver other like hard goods like drugs and personal protective equipments to us snap under any kind of pressure. And we're, we're not able to make our own stuff. Likewise, uh, you know, you can contrast the just the sheer amount of munitions that the U.S. was making as recently as the 1990s to what we make now, where we're kind of running up, sh- kind of running out of munitions to supply to Ukraine and not that long Especially in an age where it seems like industrial warfare is coming back, right? It's not mm. going house to house in Baghdad and using robots to like in the wars of the future. It seems like a lot of them are gonna be war the old fashioned wars of like big tanks, big ships, big planes. And we're actually falling behind under the neoliberal order on when that stuff as that as far as that stuff is concerned. So So we um, can have know, our
1: cake and eat it to, so we can have it both ways in some sense. We don't have to actually accept too much of a trade off.
2: No, I mean we. Uh, th- there was a le- there was a less of a trade off, and I mean for all sorts of macroeconomic reasons. Now, you know, to be fair, uh, you know, in the, uh, the, the the New Deal order hit its limits. There, I'm not I'm not like starry eyed to forget, you know, there was stagflation for a while. Um, There was wage price inflation. Some of the unions uh, were just too intransigent about worker flexibility. Some industries needed to be deregulated given technological change like telecommunications. So I'm not saying like restore everything about that era, including in its kind of sclerosis. Um, But the idea that you can pay your workers more, that that you shouldn't neglect manufacturing and the real economy and just sort of fetishize finance and... You know, Silicon Valley that those sorts of principles, I think, is what is worth Mm. preserving. And I think actually the anxiety of the post-COVID age when it seems like, you know, shit, we can't like make our own stuff is is should point us back to a period when we definitely did make our own stuff and a lot of the world's stuff.
0: That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.